If you'd like to take your Bibles with me this morning, I'm going to read the scripture that Pastor Matt's going to share in a moment. Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The Bible that I brought with me is an English Standard Version, so it may sound just slightly different than the one you're reading, but I think that that will be just fine. Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses. Give you just a moment. Here's how it reads. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reading of God's word. Thank you, brother. A while back, I was on a phone call with one of my siblings, catching up, talking about different things, and then the subject turned to our mother. Uh, Like all mothers, my mom is unique. She has funny things about her. Uh, But that day, uh, however, my sibling was actually kind of complaining a bit about my mom and even even undermining her character a bit. And all of a sudden, like, defensive Matt came out. It's my mom. I'm a Protestant, but I believe in some version of sainthood for certain people. <laughs> but what is it for you? Like, what is it that maybe in the last month someone was stepping on that you value that got that rise in your heart? Um, maybe, maybe it's a parent and someone was saying something about your kid. No, no, no. Uh, for some of you, maybe it's your favorite sports team. Maybe it's some, some of you have uh, got defensive for your country. I wonder, however, if you feel the same about the name of Jesus Christ. Do you have this undeterred passion to make sure the character and honor and worth of the Son of God is known and treasured and valued? And if not, why? Like, why is that? Why are you quick to defend your country or the Iowa State Cyclones after they get obliterated by their cross-state rival. But not the name of Jesus. What we're going to see here is that the Apostle Paul is moved, motivated, and on a mission for the name of Jesus. So we've spent several weeks walking through Romans chapter 1. 
And we've gone through the first four verses. And in those first verses, we've really begun, we've gotten like some of the very core teachings about who is Jesus, about what is the gospel, what is the good news of Christianity. You know, we saw the good news of Christianity includes this idea that the Son of God came and took on human flesh. He, he came as a, as a weak human person, able to die, able to be, to be nailed, able to be pierced. But in so dying for his people, it says he is now resurrected. He's reigning as the Son of God in power and in glory. And people can know him and believe in him. And so today, having looked at this gospel message about what Jesus has done, we're now moving toward what is the mission? Like, what is the mission of God's people? We have this message. What's our what's our our mission and Bruce got it going by reading the text. Let me just give you a summary statement for this passage and then we'll break it into parts. What is the mission of God's people? I'd put it this way. We are to proclaim the obedience of faith to all people for Christ's glory under God's sovereign grace. It's a mouthful. So we're going to take it in parts. We proclaim the obedience of faith to all people for Christ's glory under God's sovereign grace. Four pieces to this statement. The task, the scope, the drive, and the power. Let's let's, let's take it apart. The task. What what, what is the task? And notice what Paul says in in, in verse 5, right? He talks, he says, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, in the immediate context, Paul is saying that through the Lord Jesus Christ, he has received the privilege and the responsibility to work for Jesus. And maybe you know a bit about Paul's story. Paul did not begin as this passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually went by a name Saul. He was a passionate follower of, of Israel under the teachings of the Old Covenant, committed to a sect of uh, Judaism called the Pharisees. He was passionate about all things Israel. And he saw originally Jesus as an upstart or fake a blasphemer. And what he did is he was doing everything he could to rid the world of those who would say that Jesus is anything other than a dead man. But what he says, by God's grace, and by God's calling, he was transformed into this person on mission for God. Most likely when he uses this term, uh, the grace and apostleship, it's like using two ways to actually say one thing. He's saying it is such a gift, such a divine gift to be in service to Jesus. But such a high gift, such a high call, means he's going to perform this work with sober seriousness. And then he says this task, what's he doing? What is he to do? He says he's to, to call all Gentiles, all people, to the obedience that comes from faith. And we kind of need to understand this expression. We're supposed to proclaim the obedience of faith. Some translations say the obedience that comes from faith. Like, what is this term? It's actually here in the first uh, four or five verses of Romans. It's actually mentioned again at the very tail end of Romans. A lot of people say the book of Romans is all about the justification by faith. If you look at the 
uh, the beginning of Romans, the end of Romans, it's actually about the obedience of faith. What is it? Well, let me just put it this way. The best way is to understand is that Paul is using a very shorthand expression to say what is New Testament Christianity. Uh, And and that Christianity contrasts from Old Testament Judaism. An Old Testament Jew prided themselves on obedience to the law. If you read through the first five books of the Old Testament, it's all about obedience to the law. They're, all of their lives were be sh- to be shaped under this law. Their whole lives were to be shaped by this law. And Paul says there's a new sort of shaping in New Testament Christianity. It's out of faith that we now live. In other places it says we are no longer under law, we are under grace. That means that our obedience now is in response to salvation. It's in response to God's mercy, not in order to earn God's mercy. One way to think about this is uh, the difference of behavior that might happen in dating versus marriage. Now, when I first met Carrie, I wasn't sure she liked me let alone loved me. And I know she's surprised by this, but I actually was putting my best foot forward. (laughs) Um, But when when I said something foolish or I acted dumb, it was so embarrassing. Like, I felt shame. I I felt fear that she was going to walk out and find someone else. I feared she was going to pass up on me. And so what happened in my dating relationship is my actions were according to a set of rules. And the only way I had peace at the end of the day or the end of the date, did I perform well. But something sweet has happened over the years. I believe that Carrie actually loves me. Despite my few strengths and my many weaknesses. And and what's, what's beginning to happen is when I remember and when I revel in her love, I actually respond with loving actions. Actions no longer to earn her love. I already have it. But in response to her amazing love, acceptance, and embrace. And this is what Paul is doing when he's talking about an obedience characterized by faith or an obedience of faith. Right? It's out of a peace with the living God that a Christian can now walk. He loves you with an everlasting love. And through believing in Jesus Christ, you are secure in that love. Secure. You can't lose it. John 10, Jesus talks about the Father. He puts you in his hand, and you are not ripping anything out of the Almighty Father's hand. Because remember, you can never work enough. You can never obey enough. You can never serve enough. You can never sacrifice enough to have peace with God. And this is why Jesus came and lived for us. This is why Jesus died for us. And then you know that when you believe that you trust in Jesus Christ, 
what can now flow out of you is this obedience characterized by faith. Romans 14.23b, which by the second half of the verse, says anything done apart from faith is sin. It's that idea that if you don't rest in a trusting, saving relationship with God and revel in His salvation for you, and you go out and act, and it's not in faith, it actually doesn't please Him. It doesn't work that way. Another place, it talks about the obedience of faith and describes it is in Romans chapter 6. So just Paul explaining himself, he explains it later in Romans chapter 6. So go to verse 15. Verse 15, Romans 6, 15. He asks this question. Because that's the, here's the question you're asking. Matt, are you, you saying that my actions, my obedience, my works, they don't matter? Sweet. More football and beer the rest of the day. That's what Matt said on Sunday. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul is saying he believes that true Christians saved by grace, they will gladly obey God. In fact, it won't be an obedience out of obligation or fear. It says it will come from a, from a glad heart, a saved heart. Think about this. If you are only obeying God so you don't get caught, it's not out of love that you're doing it. Well, it is love, but it's love for your own skin, not God's glory. The obedience of faith is an obedience flowing from a heart in love with God, delighting in his safe arms and excited, excited to be a slave of God. The Savior who bought you from the safe block of sin and death. And so what is the Christian's task? We proclaim the obedience of faith. So friends, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you've been in church for a lot of years. You have tried and tried and tried to live a pure life. You've tried to measure up to your own standard, other people's standards, even the actual Bible's standards. And you feel guilt and you feel shame. And you finally realize that no amount of obedience out of the law can ever change that. Today you come and you trust in Jesus. He's lived the life you couldn't live. He has died the death that you fully deserve. Rest in the saving arms of Jesus. Let Jesus transform you so that your obedience is driven by joy and not guilt. Become a glad slave of righteousness. Embrace the obedience of faith. I'll add one last paragraph written by a man named Robert Murray McShane. He says, I must not weary you one word more. Look at Revelation chapter twenty-two, seventeen. 17. Sweet, sweet words. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. 
The last invitation in the Bible and the freest, Christ's parting word to a world of sinners. Anyone that pleases may take this glorious way of salvation. Can you refuse it? I am sure you cannot. Dear friend, be persuaded by a fellow worm not to put off another moment. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is what we proclaim. Believe, live out of this. That's our task. That's our message. But what is the scope? Uh, What I mean by that is how far should Christianity engage in this task? With whom or to whom should this message go? And if you look back in verse 5, the New International Version translates, it says the term all the Gentiles. If you, I think the ESV says all people or all nations. Uh, the, the short answer is, what is the, ta- or what is the scope? How, how far should this message go? To every location on the globe, every tribe and people, all types of people, every address in Marion, every neighbor on your street. That's, how, that's the scope. That's how far it's supposed to go. Again, Paul, in the immediate context, he's describing his own uh, ministry. He's like, I, the, 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 what God has given me, what God has called me to be an ambassador for the gospel, I'm supposed to go to all people. And, and those of you who know your New Testament know that he's particularly called to go to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But even though he was particularly called to non-Jewish people, he still talked to Jewish people about Jesus. And those of you who also know your Bible know, oh, the Apostle Peter, he was particularly called to talk to Jewish people. But he told the gospel to non-Jewish people. Because they, they know that the scope of this message is all people. Again, letting Paul explain Paul, if you turn in your Bibles to Romans 15... He's describing how the gospel is supposed to go to all people. And in in one short little section, he actually quotes four different Old Testament promises and prophecies saying the the scope of our ministry, the scope of God's mission is all people. It was recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. It's confirmed in the New Testament scriptures. Romans 15 verses 8 through 12 read this way. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. 2 Samuel 22. Again, it says in the Old Testament, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Deuteronomy 32. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Psalm 117. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up. The one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. How wide's the scope? All people, all nations, all neighbors. Remember also Jesus' final parting words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. 
and let them know I'm with them always to the end. You know, God's heart, it's all over the Bible. Maybe you guys know the familiar story of Jonah. It has nothing to do with fishing. Like some of you fishermen only come to church for the, the, the one hope that someone will actually preach on the greatest fishing story of all time. You get a, just a small point. But the, the book of Jonah is all about God's heart for all people. And Jonah actually knew that. And that's why he didn't go. Do you realize that? Jonah, God says, I want you to go to the Ninevites. I want you to proclaim actually destruction. But Jonah knows, wait a minute. Whenever he has proclaimed destruction and judgment for the Jews, it's always turned out for him to be merciful. And so it says he went the other way. But God was so committed that God's name and glory and salvation would be known to the Ninevites that Jonah tried to go on a boat the wrong direction. And God says, I have my own little aqua submarine to get you where I want you to go. Because they needed to know. And God even said that. Don't you know, Jonah, that I love these people? You remember the scene where God had this plant raise up and the plant go away and Jonah's pouting about, I lost my shade. I lost my tree. I lost my ancient lazy boy. You know, and God's like, you know how sad you are about losing your comfort? Don't you think I care about people? So I wonder in your own heart, have you embraced the scope of God's mission. But ask the deeper question, who are the Ninevites for you? Like, who are the people you actually don't really want to be in heaven with? You're like, oh, I'd never say that, Pastor Matt. I know you wouldn't say it, but do you ever think it? Who are the people that bother you? Get under your skin. They're in God's scope for his mission. That annoying person at work, besides you, they need Jesus. The neighbor who has everything in the yard that they shouldn't have in the yard, they need Jesus. That's the scope. You know, a while back, I was with a group of really godly pastors. Love these guys. And one of these godly men proceeded to share a story. Uh, He'd taken some days off. He was hanging out with some friends. And one of those friends invited an extra buddy. And the extra buddy was obnoxious and annoying. And a a little, about a day or two later, a friend of my pastor said, hey, what did you think of so-and-so? I'm hoping to invite him to the next time. And my pastor friend was like, dear God, no. And then the friend continued, because this guy has had really no experience with church and doesn't know anything about God, and I'm hoping that maybe we can tell them about Jesus. I would just encourage you, as you think about the scope of God's mission, one, to really be praying for people. And if you're wondering who to start with, put the people on the list that you're tempted not to put on the list. 
But then start asking your questions. Will you build relationships with people from different political parties, sexual expressions, and ethnicities in your neighborhood so that they may come to know, know God and glorify him? And thinking about all nations, would you sit down and look at your budget and say, have I invested dollars in the past year to make sure the name of Jesus is known in another country among a people who have not yet heard the gospel in their own language? That's the scope. All people, all nations. What's the task? We're going to proclaim to them the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ. But what about the drive? Let's talk about the drive. That is, what actually motivates us to do this work? What fuels the mission? Now, speaking of fuel, uh, my oldest son, Samuel, started driving this summer. And, uh, you know, when I first started driving... And I pulled up to a gas station. I usually had one kind of gas that I could put in my car. And Samuel, because he's a wise, smart guy, said, Dad, I've pulled up, and it's a coloring book of options <laughs> to put gas in the car. You know, and I'm sitting there going, okay, let's see. My, uh, 2007 Taurus. Uh, not, not, no blue pumps, no, no yellow pumps, no green pumps. Like a... Because only a certain kind of fuel is actually going to drive that car anywhere. You need a fuel that will do do the job. And we start thinking about the task of God's mission and the scope of God's mission. You're like, well, what's going to motivate us? And so when it comes to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, some people get motivated by different things. Some are fueled by the reality that if people do not surrender and believe in Jesus Christ, they will spend an eternity in judgment in hell. Some are motivated, some are fueled by the fact that God promises rewards for faithfulness to him in different ways. Others simply proclaim the gospel out of sheer guilt. But did you catch Paul's primary motivation he says for the sake of his name that's what drives god's mission for the name and fame of jesus christ this wasn't about paul's guilt or future rewards not primarily about the eternal destiny of those to whom he preached paul cared about taking the glory and honor of god to the ends of the earth that's God's mission. Did you know that? Habakkuk 2.14, right? That the knowledge and the glory of the Lord will get to the ends of the earth as far as, far as the sea you know, spreads across the globe. That, that's God's mission, and Paul embraces God's mission. I want his name known. I want his name lifted up. I want his name honored. The late John Stott wrote this, We should be jealous for the honor of his name troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it's ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due it. Think about this. Maybe, maybe you've asked this question. Well, how does proclaiming the obedience of faith actually impact the, the honor of Jesus' name? How do they go together? Uh, well, actually, I believe this is the rallying cry and the rallying purpose behind the Protestant Reformation. 
let me just quickly explain that. There were five central doctrines that drove Christians in the 15th and 16th century to recover the gospel for the church. Here were the five truths. It was this, that humanity's salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, these truths preserved in God's scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. You see, God receives much glory when we see that the saving work is all accomplished by him. His scriptures proclaiming his glorious son, us trusting only in him, brings much glory to him. And there's all sorts of versions that try to add your efforts into the mix. But if you add any of your efforts to the mix, Jesus gets less glory. So Roman Catholicism claims that human works contribute merit to their salvation. But then humans can boast in some part of their salvation. You have a similar sort of teaching in the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. And all these just undermine God's glory. And they, they make a, a pretty shallow gospel if you can help with it. And really, this is what this is where what the, the foundation that Paul lays in the first three chapters of Romans. So when he gets to the end of chapter three, what what does he say? Chapter three, verse twenty-seven. If, if that the work of salvation is all done by God for God's glory, where then is boasting? What can I be proud about? Well, none. Where then is boasting excluded? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. No boasting. No addition. You've heard me say this before, but Martin Luther got it right when he said, when you come to the table of salvation before God, the only thing that you bring to the table is your sin. Through God alone. Uh, Very end of Galatians, Paul says something similar when he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. What counts? God made new people through the blood of his Son, Through God alone, a person is saved, transformed, and reborn. Even the obedience that will come from faith is empowered by God's grace, not our efforts. And so that's one of my prayers. I was like, oh, Lord, make the driving passion of my heart and the driving passion of people in this church the fame and name of Jesus Christ, to his glory alone. And if that begins to happen, if we have the the scope of all people and we have the passion for his name. We'll become one uh, Christian leader named Tom Steller. He calls them world Christians. This is his definition of a, of a world Christian. He's from Training Leaders International. He says this, A world Christian is someone who is gripped by the glory of God and the glory of his global purpose that he chooses to align himself with God's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. 
I would love to be more gripped by God's glory and his mission to take the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. A hunger to see Jesus receive much glory. That's got to be our fuel. It's got to be our fuel. Let me close finally with one final thing, the power. Where is the mission going to find power? To see the globe reached? To see rebellious sinners who are angry at God and usually in love with their sin transformed? First, let me just say to those who are committed to this cause, who are, are, are beginning to move and say, yes, I want to be a part of God's mission. Let me ease your maybe rising guilty conscience. The power is not in you. You don't have, and I don't have the power to save one person. It's not in us. Now, the good news is, is God doesn't expect us to pull this off in our strength. Uh, How does the task get accomplished? And I think the answer is back here in verses 6 and 7. Kind of on a broad heading of God's sovereign grace. But look at how Paul ended 6 and 7. He said, he turns the corner now and he talks to those Roman Christians, the Christians who were in Rome in the first century. And he says, you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Two key words here that actually recur in several of Paul's epistles. To be called by God and to be loved by God. Called, love. First, let's talk about what it means that God calls people. Now, when we hear the word call, we have just spent too many years uh, picking up uh, our rotary phones and now our cellular phones and calling people and hoping people answer. But if you read throughout the Bible, those whom God calls respond. And so uh, there's a Bible scholar by the name of Doug Moo, and he talks about how do you understand calling? He's, he says this is the best way to understand this term. What is meant is not an invitation, but the powerful and irresistible reaching out of God in grace to bring people into his kingdom. God calls. So that means I might witness to someone about Jesus, but God can call them into his family. Reformed theologians will use the term effectual calling. And the reason why they call it because those whom God calls ultimately experience salvation. And if you have doubt of that, turn later when Paul uses this term in Romans 8.30. This is a verse worth memorizing. Romans 8.30, Paul tells us, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This has been called the golden chain of salvation. You can't take out a single link. Those who are called by God get justified by God and get glorified by God. And this is sovereign. This is something God's doing. I will never fully understand it, but we see God calls and people respond, which, by the way, that tells me the power when you go out today is not in your persuasion. It's not in how well you've mastered some way to share the gospel or uh, you share. God calls. You share. God calls. 
Similarly, this expression back in Romans, it says, he, and there, he says to the Roman Christians, you've been loved by God. And God's love doesn't just spring up out of nowhere. It's an everlasting love. It's a, an eternal love. A, a, we can use the term an electing love from what Paul says also in Ephesians 1. Let me remind you, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Um, some of you know that actually Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14 is actually one sentence in the Greek. Modern English translators have made it much easier to read. But I'll tell you, I am blown away every time I read this text because God, it was God's pleasure to save people. God's arm doesn't feel twisted. Okay, Matt Proctor gets in. He delights to save. He loves to save. I want you to know this, brother or sister Christian. You did not come to God's mind a few days ago. You did not come to God's mind a few weeks ago. You didn't come into God's mind the day you believed in Jesus. You have been loved by God since before the foundation of the world. The cross of Jesus Christ is the preeminent display of God's love. And because God's love doesn't change, know this. He has loved you with an intensive, self-giving love for every second of time and even outside of time itself. That cross love is the love that he has had for his people for all time. This is what it means that God loves you. God loves you. So in the case of mission, you need to know that though God uses you, it is God's power, his eternal love, his effectual call that draws people to believe in him. We are simply messengers. God does all the work. We are spiritual midwives. He's the one that brings new births. And so we proclaim, that's what we do, the obedience of faith. To all people, all nations, for Christ's name, but under God's sovereign grace. So let me just move to application by sharing my own personal convictions in the preparations of this sermon. Do all the study in the text, read, pray, see truths, and then I have to ask myself what keeps me from proclaiming the gospel? What keeps me from calling people to the obedience of faith? And what I found in my own soul is a fascination with two lesser glories. Two things less than the name of Jesus. I live to please and I live for ease. So rather than live for the honor of Jesus, I want people to like me. I live to please family and friends, strangers, even acquaintances. So not only is this dishonoring to Jesus, I'm not helping anyone. Listen to me. People need to know and love Jesus. People do not need to know or even like Matt Proctor. 
They need to know him. And so God, please forgive me for living to please others. Second, I live for ease. So rather than live for the praise and honor of God, rather than find my greatest joy in knowing him and making him known, I live for temporary pleasures. I avoid hardship, rejection, or the loss of time. And and so I asked myself this week, what's it going to take for me to recommit to proclaiming Christ and his salvation? And that made me think of Chick-fil-A. Why? Because until I was like almost 27, 28 years old, I was a Chick-fil-A cynic. I hung out with all these evangelical Christians that raved about Chick-fil-A, and I thought y'all were crazy. But then I went. Those people are really nice. And the spicy chicken sandwich is really good. And the, uh, the avocado salad's good. The app to order online is good. And I began to realize that the reason why I now speak highly of Chick-fil-A is because I've gotten to know Chick-fil-A. And so here's my application for me from this sermon. I need to go back and remember how great and glorious is Jesus. Because when I spend time with Jesus, when I read the word, when I pray, when I, I look at him in the world, I'm like, oh my word, he's amazing. And as I know him, I want to make him known. And so I'm drawn once again to go back to some of the basic things that I want to know Christ and make him know. Yet, no, no, yes, I want to remember the task. I want to consider the scope. I want to embrace the drive. I want to recall the power. But for me, it's to marvel at Jesus Christ once again. And then go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Let me pray. Father, thank you for my friends here today. Um, some are guests. Some have been here a long time, longer than me. And they've encouraged me in my walk. They've encouraged me to look to Jesus. And so I just have the opportunity to do it to them today. Look to Jesus. Lord, it's such a privilege to look to you, to remember your everlasting love, to remember the cross of Jesus Christ, that everlasting love that calls people out of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. And so I pray that if someone hasn't responded to God's call, it hasn't been broken over their sin, that today would be the day that they would say, I believe. I'm coming. And those of us who have come to know you, we pray that in the week ahead, we'd come to know you deeper and and then treasure making you known. We pray that Jesus would get much honor. Jesus would get much glory. We pray as John the Baptist prayed, Jesus must increase, we must decrease. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.